You're listening to The Road Not Taken Podcast, upstate New York's number one home for thoughtful, accurate commentary on news, sports, politics, and other topics. Episode 5. All right, so today on the show we have Jarrett Altilio. Jarrett is currently a paralegal at a law firm in Albany, New York. He currently uh, works there, and he is a former employee of Chuck Schumer, and he has an interest in a career in politics. So we're going to talk with Jarrett about a couple of different things, uh, but the first thing that we're going to do is go over some of the Democratic challengers to Donald Trump. Uh, we'll look at some of their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, in prior episodes, we've done a couple of in-depth looks at one or two candidates per episode, but we're going to have Jarrett give his opinion on the entire field, and then we're going to look at what kind of candidate the Democratic Party should nominate in order to have their best chance at defeating Donald Trump in the general election. So, uh, Jarrett, uh, you're live, so you can say hello. Hello. I'm glad that you invited me on. I'm glad to be here. All right. Uh, so I think you heard the first question. Uh, we're going to cut out a couple of the minor figures. Uh, so we're going to focus on the more major players in the Democratic Party. So among the declared candidates, we have Cory Booker. We have uh, Julian or Julian Castro. We have Tulsi Gabbard, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, um, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, we're also expecting announcements from Joe Biden and Beto O'Rourke, so we can throw those in, and we will leave Howard Schultz um, in a different category as he plans to run on the independent ticket and not the Democratic ticket. So uh, I'll just repeat the first question uh, quickly. Um, we're trying to build the, the ideal candidate that the Democratic Party needs to nominate, whether that's somebody who's economically moderate uh, very far to the left, uh, good with minorities, and drawing from a diverse voting population. Uh, so who do you think the best candidate is? And I guess as you answer that, you can kind of enumerate on the strengths and weaknesses and the chances that some of those challengers uh, that'll be battling it out in the Democratic primaries have against each other, and then theoretically, if they do make it that far, against Donald Trump. Yeah, so, I mean... <clears throat> I guess I, I would start by saying that I think that the uh, the idea that there's this grand debate within the Democratic Party about the, the divide between this super liberal wing, the Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, Elizabeth Warren wing, and then the, you know, more, I guess, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, um, since we're New Yorkers, Andrew Cuomo wing. Um, I think it's overplayed. I think it's, you know, I think it's a media hype sort of story because at the end of the day, I think that what's going to be most important is that when people go to vote, among other things, on their 2020 ballot, there's going to be the Democratic candidate and there's going to be Donald Trump. And, you know, there were a lot of people in 2016, to be fair, who were fans of Bernie Sanders or Jill Stein or, or someone else who did not vote for Hillary Clinton. And that's water under the bridge. But, you know, in 2020, I think the states, the stakes are even that much higher. And, you know, whether it is a sort of Joe Biden, uh, 
Cory Booker type candidate, or it is a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren type candidate on the ballot. I think that the divide between whether we want someone who is economically liberal to the extent that Bernie Sanders calls himself a democratic socialist, or whether we want someone who is more, I guess, friendly to both sides like Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Beto O'Rourke, I don't think that's going to matter as much. So I guess we'll get into a little bit more later about, uh, you know, what exactly that means, because I think there are actual distinguishable differences between some of these candidates on economic and social issues. But, you know, overall, I think that I guess my point is that, you know, this uh, this idea is a little overplayed that there's going to be this great divide. And I think there will be a much easier time this time around for people to coalesce behind whoever the dominant is, whoever that may be. Granted, I think there will there there will be some candidates who are naturally better suited to be the nominee. Right. So I think if I understand correctly what you're saying, um, in the last election cycle, we had some you know Bernie Sanders voters who were still sore about the loss to Hillary, didn't go to the polls to vote at all. Um, but now that the Democratic and the progressive, you know, the entire spectrum of the left wing in this country have seen Donald Trump and you know presumably really hate him. They'll be uh, much less conscientious in their objections. They'll essentially suck it up and vote for the lesser of the two evils. Um, there might be some disagreements in the primary, uh, but once you do get that nominee, uh, I think what you're saying, if I understand it, is that um, you're going to see much more unity behind whoever that candidate ends up being. I believe so. I like to think so. I think there will be, you know, of course, there will be those conscientious objectors, but, you know, I think that. Before, a lot of the conscientious objection stemmed with people saying, you know, especially in certain states and regions, that their nitpicky objections to Hillary Clinton were okay because she was going to win anyway. And now I think we've really reckoned with, as a party, as a nation, as a people, with what can happen when we make those mistakes. And I think speaking as a Democrat and speaking as someone you know who's been following this primary in its early stages i think that you know at the end of the day most of the party and most independents who for the record do not and have not supported donald trump over the course of his presidency will come around to the idea that i mean <laughs> pretty much anything is, is is better but you know the nitpicky differences if we want to talk about how you know hillary clinton gave speeches on Wall Street, or Cory Booker is cozied up to Big Pharma, or Kamala Harris's prosecutorial record is not as, as as liberal as we'd like. Those things are more excusable when paired with Donald Trump presidency, which I don't think that we as a party or we as a nation can afford four more years of. All right, so we're going to run through some of the candidates. So I'll let you start. Um, we have some like obvious favorites, then we have some more dark horses. So if you want to start with some of the candidates that are more on the fringes of this discussion and then work your way up to who you think the strongest or most likely candidates to win this primary are, um, and then kind of assess their candidacy, so what you think their strengths and weaknesses are, both against, one each, uh, against each other in the primaries uh, or against Donald Trump in the general or both or any combination uh, as you see fit. Sure. So... I guess I would start with, if we're starting from the bottom up, um, I guess we would go with the 
I guess the lower tier I would I would put together with the uh, some of the more recent announcements of Jay Inslee, Governor of Washington, John Hickenlooper, former Governor of Colorado, Pete Buttigieg, Mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I would also probably throw, looking at the the whole of the field, probably Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii and Julian Castro of Texas. I'd probably throw them in the the dark horse sort of uh, field. They are people who are either heirs or governors or former governors or Congress people. Um, the rest of the field, I think, are pretty set as U.S. senators or former governors or Senate candidates. Um, so for the Castros and such, you know, I, I don't know if you want me to, to go through each of them individually because they're lower tier, but, you know, I, I think in order for someone to win or succeed in this this primary, if I guess we'll take Julian Castro just as a one-off example. I think for someone like him to succeed, it would take a long game approach where you sort of see the the top tier contenders sort of fall off in some degree, um, where either there's scandal or there's a lot of uh, critique of them that permits them to sort of fall from the top tier down. And that sort of makes the voters look for someone from one of those lower tiers, like a Castro or Hickenlooper Inslee. But if you're looking at the 2020 Democratic primary and you're looking at what the base that will be voting in 2020 wants in a candidate, I find it very difficult to believe that a Julian Castro or Jay Inslee or John Hickenlooper is going to succeed in the Iowa caucus or the New Hampshire primary. Um, you know, these are not necessarily, I mean, for one, I think Julian Castro was someone who I thought was when I, you know, back in, in 2014 or 15, when I was speculating as to who Hillary Clinton's uh, VP nominee would be, I thought of Castro first. I think he'd be a fantastic VP nominee in 2016. Uh, but a 2020 presidential nominee, just like Tim Kaine, I, I would say maybe not so much. He he misses the mark a little bit. Right. Then I a second uh, oh, a second tier of candidates. Sure. Which are yeah. Those who are not so much dark horses, but someone who are you know they're 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 never going to miss the main debate stage for so to speak. But they're they're also not someone who you're going to be mentioning in the top five of the polls. People who I would probably think are not really likely to finish in the top three or four in the Iowa caucus. And I would put in that that sort of um, that that uh, group, the Kirsten Gillibrands and Amy Klobuchar's. Um, they are U.S. senators. They are uh, legitimate candidates in their own right. And I think that they will command a reasonable amount of support. But because this is such a crowded field and because um, I think this tier will struggle to find exactly where they fit, you know, I think the reason why so many of the people in the top tier are where they are is either because they command support because of who they are or because of what they stand for. And the reason that you're in the second tier is because either you lack that, that uh, name recognition or that MO of who you are or you lack that one thing that really brings you the spotlight. And I think that's a perfect description of who on the national stage, who Amy Klobuchar and Kirsten Gillibrand are. Exactly. And, and, and at the same time, these I think we're seeing, if you look at the media landscape, you know, for me, I, I, I happen to like them both a lot. And I think that they're both very smart, very policy-oriented candidates. And I think they'd both make good presidents. 
But at the same time, if you look at their launches of their campaigns and such, I think, you know, they both struggled to not only gain traction, but in the wake of their, their, their launches, you've seen sort of a lot of the media attention to Amy Klobuchar has been, does she mistreat her staff? You know, is she eating her, her salad with a comb? Is she <laughs> being too mean? You know, right. and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand is, you know, did she go too hard against Al Franken, against these these people accusing them of sexual misconduct? And D- does she have a policy position at all? Kirsten Gillibrand? Yeah. No, I, I've that's, seen that as a criticism another, from both the left another, and the right. Another big critique of Kirsten Gillibrand from the left and the right is that you know, there's a question from both sides of what she stands for, because Kirsten Gillibrand came up as an upstate New York congresswoman who represented a two-to-one Republican district. And so if you're on the left, you're going to say, you know, this woman used to be, you know, a little too cozy with the Second Amendment. She used to be too cozy with Republican interests. And if you're from the right, you're going to say she's completely flip-flopped, and now she is, in fact, the most anti-Trump uh, in terms of her voting record, the most anti-Trump Democrat in the United States Senate. So from both angles, you could say, you know, what does she stand for? And it depends on where she is or what she is. I think there is an element of sexism, by the way, to, to, to these. You'll see that, you know, why is it that Kirsten Gillibrand and Amy Klobuchar get these sorts of critiques when others sort of get a pass, I guess, like, uh, you know, Cory Booker, who has taken some questionable votes for Beto O'Rourke, right. who actually has a, a DWI in his record, mm-hmm. and many people don't know these things. And, and to be fair, I think those... All the critiques, but, you know, I, I'm just saying, you know, but, I, but for the, you know, all of that aside, I, I think that stripping all that away, you know, there's that sort of second tier of the Klobuchar's and the Jill Brands who they could break in given the right moment. You can't count them out, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that they're necessarily people who are going to – they're going to struggle more so than a Sanders or a Harris or a Warren or a Biden to find that base. I think, you know, there aren't many people saying, you know – there are, I know a lot of people are waiting for Joe Biden's announcement. I'm one of them. Uh, you know, but there are a lot of people who are waiting for Bernie Sanders or waiting for Elizabeth Warren to announce. But I feel like a lot of the people that would end up supporting Amy Klobuchar or Kirsten Gillibrand are going to do so not because they were desperately waiting for those people to announce, but because they're going to settle on those candidates for whatever reason. Right. And uh, I do actually agree with what you said about um, Amy Klobuchar and Kirsten Gillibrand perhaps being the target of extra scrutiny due to an element of sexism. Uh, I think that particularly in Klobuchar's case, those are traits that we see commonly from CEOs and executives on Wall Street and in big companies uh, being tough, you know, being, I guess, mean. Or even something like throwing binders at people. In a lot of cases, uh, you would brush that off as somebody being a strong male leader. Um, and I find it interesting, actually, that um, I'm not I'm not sure where these sorts of scandals are gaining attention from. Um, but it's it, it's interesting to see whether or not they take hold more among the conservatives that are eager to trash all the Democratic nominees, or if they're coming from people among the left who are infighting. Um, the other thing I'd like to point out real quick, and then I'll, I'll let you go back to that that top tier is elizabeth warren in a sense already had her giant scandal which was the uh, the native american uh, dna ancestry test and she's come out of that you know still a contender for the nomination maybe not the favorite but somebody in that realm so i, I do have to say I, I don't see elizabeth warren dropping out of that tier 
Um, but it's interesting how with people like Kirsten Gillibrand and you know somebody like Amy Klobuchar specifically, there's really no margin for error. Um, do you think that a couple of those top tier candidates, do you think that a scandal would damage them at this point? Or do you think that the Democratic Party is so focused on beating Trump and, you know, they see the same kind of behavior from Trump that in many ways is a lot worse than any Democratic nominee, you know, would probably end up, uh, you know, doing over the course of this election cycle. Um, do you think that they suck it up or do you think that a scandal is going to tank somebody like that if it can't tank somebody like Elizabeth Warren? I think you're really on to something because uh, I think that really marks – that's part of what really marks these tiers here is that, you know, for someone like Amy Klobuchar or Kirsten Gillibrand, they have room to make up. So for any any uh, drawback or any step backward for them, it means a lot more than someone like Harris or Sanders or Warren. A step back you can, you can, you can uh, make up for. But, you know, if anything um, – happens to these other folks who are on the outside looking in, you know, you've got a lot of these people also, like Joe Biden looms large over this field, obviously as the candidate who has the most experience um, and name recognition. There's a lot more as a result of that, similar to what we saw with Hillary Clinton. There's a lot more that you can attack and critique. So... It, I think a big marker of this primary will be, especially for this top tier, because it will be where it matters most, how can they come back from the inevitable attacks? And I think that that's the other key point here is that the inevitable attacks, where are they coming from? You know, it's not going to be easy. We already wrote off Donald Trump once, and uh, to do so again would be a mistake. And we can all debate why or how or reasons as to how he was written off but you know the fact is that the way that our structural system is composed the 2020 election is going to be close and there are many of us in this country who don't think it should be but we have to get over that 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 notion because it will be it's going to be close it's the way that the electoral system is composed and the way that our nominee the democratic nominee you know is able to come back from attacks, whether it's from within the party, from the left or the right, or from other primary opponents, or whether it's from Donald Trump himself, like you mentioned with the Elizabeth Warren. I'm not even sure I'd call it a scandal, but you know the sure, the, sure. the the heritage debate um, <laughs> about her ancestry. You know, I think that there was a, a pretty good uh, notion that she hiccuped a bit in how she responded, um, but like you said she was able to sort of take it in stride and move on. And I think that that speaks to her strength as a candidate. Mm -hmm. And I think that other candidates can learn from that because I think that one of the things Elizabeth Warren has going for her in this race, and it's something she's always had going for her in terms of her rather young political career, is that everybody knows what she's for and why she's in it. And it has nothing at all to do with her, her heritage or her ancestry. Or right how she responds to Donald Trump, she stays on message because the entire reason she's in this race is because of that message. It's because it's what she's lived and breathed. And, you know, she's not someone who came from politics. She's someone who came from policy. So, you know, her sort of message of, um, I think the term that she likes to use is accountable capitalism. She's someone who says, 
you know, sort of to distinguish herself from Bernie Sanders, but also draw a line between the more Booker-Harris wing of the party. Uh, somewhere in between, she calls herself an accountable capitalist rather than identifying as a socialist, um, you know, to sort of draw that middle line. And I think that that's a, probably a good place to be if you're a Democrat in this 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 environment, because we're at a time in America where uh, more millennials actually identify positively with the term socialist than capitalist. And, uh, you know, it's not that that's a good or a bad thing, but the fact is that if you're going to distinguish yourself from the front runners, which at this time, according to polls and name recognition and every other indication, are Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, if you are Elizabeth Warren, that is probably the balance you want to strike is somewhere in between. And, uh, you know, but the, the, the point is, whether you're Elizabeth Warren or not, you have to stay on message. And I think that more so than, like I said earlier, this media message of are you liberal enough? Are you progressive enough? Where are you economically on the spectrum? I think the most important thing going into the general election, which is what matters most, is how you strike that balance in responding to or attacking Donald Trump, because there's a fundamental disagreement in the Democratic Party right now that I think that we need to reconcile before the general election. And that is, do you take the approach of attacking him and responding to everything because we all know whether you love him or hate him we all know that donald trump is always going to have something to say something to tweet and donald trump is the type of person who responds to every sort of you know uh, perceived slight right it doesn't you know it doesn't matter how minute or how major he will respond and so even in 2016 you know people attacked hillary on both sides saying you know hey Either some people thought she wasn't hard enough on him, that she didn't go back at him enough, that she tried to take the high road too much, and some people thought that she engaged too much. So I think that's a real fundamental thing that we're going to have to decide. Because the fact of the matter is, in my personal opinion, you know, I think if the Democratic not, I think that the American electorate knows what's wrong with Donald Trump. I don't think that the American electorate is asking for the Democratic nominee to lay out what's wrong with him. I think that's pretty obvious. So if the Democratic nominee is going to spend all of their time, you know, uh, sort of explaining to the American public what is wrong with Donald Trump, then they're going to waste a lot of time. So I'm not sure that they should be bogged down in responding to everything. But at the same time, you know, uh, hardball Chris Matthews, you know, you don't want to leave every punch unanswered. You know, you can't be too passive. So I think striking that balance will be a really important thing. And I think that if we're talking about Democrats who are looking for someone who is the most electable, that's going to be something they're going to need to look at is someone who is going to be able to strike that balance between where do you respond and where do you not, where do you rise above and where do you not? Because you either have the Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high, or you have the uh, sort of colder Michael. I was going with Michael Avenatti, but that works too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's probably a little bit better of a uh, Eric Holder is probably a little bit better of an example, but um, you know, how do you respond to those attacks and when do you respond to those attacks? But staying on message regardless right. is going to be most important and because the American public is going to look for someone who is going to answer to how do I get affordable health care? How do I get a good paying job? 
how do I take care of my kids? And, and, and they're not going to be so much interested in, you know, has Donald Trump committed impeachable offenses or is Donald Trump tweeting something offensive today? Right. And, and just to link that back to our discussion of the Democratic candidates, um, you talked about Elizabeth Warren. Uh, there's only a few, I think like three or four left that we haven't discussed yet. Um, and I think out of the remarks that you just made, uh, Cory Booker, I think, is the one that's going to have the hardest time overcoming that stigma because he's famous for his, you know, kind of like Spartacus, his prominence on the national spotlight. And a lot of what he's saying, he's talked about unity, but at the same time, I think we look at his rhetoric, and even if you just listen to the way he talks, um, he seems like that candidate that, you know, is going to go after Trump and, you know, at least be that kind of, like, do we do we know all of his policies? Has he kind of outlined himself as a positive, um, you know, a positive figure? Like, we can identify, you know, Elizabeth Warren with busting up banks. We can, um, you know, link Bernie Sanders to democratic socialism. Do we really have anything to link to Cory Booker besides his personality in response to, you know, the Republicans that oppose him? Um, so I guess how does Cory Booker come out of this primary um, when, you know, bashing the Republicans isn't enough to, to get that nomination probably? Personally, I think that you you have identified one of Cory Booker's uh, bigger weaknesses. And I think that, I guess, taking a step back, one of Cory Booker's biggest strengths is exactly the opposite of what you've identified, which is his personality, the way he identifies himself. He's a brilliant and astute politician. And for how he has risen to where he is now, you can't argue with it. But I think, you know, looking at the list of top tier candidates, if I were to pick a top five, I think he's number six. Right. And that's the issue is I think that I guess if you were to say that, you know, I, I mean, just to, to run through that, I think I would put Harris, Sanders, Biden, O'Rourke and Warren above him. Right. And I think O'Rourke actually might have a similar problem in that uh, to compare the two. I think that a lot and perhaps Harris, if we were to if we were to make it three, would be that a lot of the a lot of it is about image. Mm-hmm. And about how they present themselves and less about, you know, what do they stand for? Like I said earlier, Elizabeth Warren, maybe you can critique her image and how she has presented herself politically, how she responded to Donald Trump's attacks. But you can't argue whether you agree with it or not, you know, with what she stands for and what her message is. And I think the same goes for Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden to a lesser degree, but to a similar degree because of the amount of time that he spent in public life. I think that his personality, his persona has sort of meshed with what he stands for. Mm-hmm. I think that people know him to be someone who has been a 30, 40 year senator, vice president of the United States, and that speaks for itself. But if you are Cory Booker, or perhaps Beto O'Rourke, a lot of it is about, the, you know, they say that Democrats fall in love with candidates and Republicans fall in line with candidates. Although I think that 2016 perhaps proved that wrong. But other than that, you know, I I think that Cory Booker will have an issue with when he when it comes to, you know, contrasting himself with these other candidates, exactly nailing down what he stands for. If this were a much less if this were the 2016 primary, you know, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were the only 
candidates of note in the primary. And there were only five candidates altogether. And, you know, two of two of the five were, were polling at less than one percent. Mm-hmm. So if this were then, you know, a lot of these people who are now second and third tier candidates, you know, would be much, much higher. It's just the fact that we're expecting as much as 20 candidates that some of these people are going to find themselves. So I think in any other year, Cory Booker probably would be in the top five. Uh, but I think he will have a hard time, like you said. I think he will have a hard time identifying exactly not only what he stands for, but I think bringing it all the way back down to the third tier of Julian Castro, someone who I think is a perfect choice for a vice presidential nominee, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, to, to reference someone who I personally admire and, and, and like as a candidate, but I'm not sure he has a chance, Pete Buttigieg, mm-hmm. um, when, when people ask him, you know, you're the, you're the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, uh, why do you think that you should be president? He answers first by saying he has more governmental experience than Donald Trump, more executive experience than Mike Pence. He's a veteran such and such. But at the same time, he says that the reason that he's running is not because he thinks he's played the calculus of does he have the best chance or not. It's because you find what you are best suited for and you go for it. But the question for some of these people is, I guess Cory Booker is one of them. Are you running because everyone's doing it and you figure, do I have a chance? Or are you running because you legitimately have a reason or a distinction between the other candidates. And some of these people, I think Biden, Warren, and Sanders, perhaps my top three, are legitimately running because they feel that they provide something nobody else does. And I think that some of these folks are going to have a hard time uh, selling the Democratic Party that they offer something no one else does because we're going to be caught in between this decision of defeating Donald Trump and picking the person who most aligns with the Democratic Party. But at the end of the day, like I, like I said at the outset, this, this party is going to present a nominee has to be Donald Trump, and this, not, this party is going to present a nominee who will undoubtedly run on the most progressive platform the party has ever put up, because even Hillary Clinton did that. So, you know, maybe the differences are marginal in that way. But, you know, like you said, I think that the Cory Booker types might have a hard sell when it comes to distinguishing themselves policy wise from some of these other people. Right. And since uh, since you already covered Elizabeth Warren, uh, we'll skip over Beto uh, just in the interest of time. And he hasn't officially announced yet anyway. Um, So we got three candidates left. We have Kamala Harris, um, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So uh, I guess those would probably all be, you know, if not top three, then definitely top five. Um, so what do you think about their chances? And then maybe cap this off with, uh, what I, you know, who what your prediction is at this time. Uh, and we will obviously, like, you know, assume Biden runs for this purpose because I, I think if he does want to run, this is his chance. Yeah. I think, well, first of all, I think these are, if you look at the polls, which absolutely mean nothing. (laughs) As we saw last cycle. Right now, I'm pretty sure, Mm -hmm. in most polls. Um, And, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, I guess, for starters, he is from a position of the past 
runner-up, so naturally he's a he's a consideration for the front runner. Right. Bernie Sanders did something really special in 2016, and uh, I don't think anyone can take that away from him. But uh, whether he can replicate it in 2020 is another story, especially with a crowded field where other candidates seem to take away from some of the magic that he he had in 2016. And I think a big conversation will be. You know, how much of his support was more so I want something different and he's the only option and how much of it was genuinely because, uh, you know, I really like and support what Bernie Sanders offers. And even if you do like and support what Bernie Sanders offers, you even have people in this race, perhaps Elizabeth Warren, to a little more moderate degree, um, you have other options. And also, for the most part, most of these candidates are supporting you know, I, I don't think there's going to be a single legitimate or uh, there's not going to be a single candidate in this race that is legitimate or has a chance of winning that won't be signed on to some version of Bernie Sanders right. uh, Medicare for all bill. Right, for, right. We've seen that shift I, I, pretty dramatically in, in the last few years. Absolutely. That's a huge difference. And it's it's like I said, I think that is to his credit. I think that is. You know, a lot, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, if Bernie Sanders didn't run in 2016, would someone else have taken on that mantle? And that's a good question. You know, I'm not sure that anyone else would have. Maybe if Elizabeth Warren had run, uh, maybe she would have. If Joe Biden had run, I don't think that that same transformation would have no. occurred in the party. Um, so, you know, I, I think that uh, he does deserve that sort of credit. But I, the party will be more leftward regardless and if we're looking at the, those sorts of that sort of top three, I guess, of Sanders and Harris and Biden, you know, there's a lot of talk about what lanes they occupy. And, you know, there's a moderate lane or a, a, a more left wing lane. You know, I think that it's way too early to tell. But, you know, I'm not sure that Sanders will be able to replicate exactly what he did in 2016, just because I think that a lot of his impact has already occurred, and that is prevalent in the party. And for the record, I think the party's better for it, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be better for him and his chances of winning the presidency. Um, I think if Joe Biden enters the race, um, it does upend things a lot. I think, first of all, it cancels out other potential candidates from running. Right. I think it closes out some lanes in terms of other candidates mm-hmm. and their potential. Like we said, you know, how do you, if you're in the, 20, the second or third tier, how do you break into the first tier? I think it does close some routes for some of those folks. Well, Klobuchar, and, I think, is the one that comes yeah, to my mind. It, she has no shot if Biden runs because they're appealing to that same sort of like, uh, at least economic, you know, that kind of like, uh, you right. know, coal worker, Klobuchar Rust Belt. Painting herself as, as a total moderate, as someone who's not even for. Uh, quote unquote free college right um and first of all i think that some of some of those positions are probably disqualifying in this part in this primary but uh, you know i think biden shuts out hopes for a lot of people when and if he does run there's a lot of other factors to consider like the donor race uh, mm-hmm. but, you know like there's a there's a lot of people who are waiting in terms of staffing him and donating to him that are waiting on him to um to join the race. And I think that all signs do indicate that he will. Uh, so, 
in the past he's indicated that the only roadblock has been whether his family approves or not and mm-hmm. he has already said publicly that his family is encouraging him to run so um, the only thing i guess that could prevent him from running is whether he thinks he could win or whether he thinks that he at this stage in his life is up for it and you know that's up to him not us but and one one interesting thing, if if you don't mind me jumping in here, is uh, up until this point, on the point you're making about donors and uh, you know staffers, Bernie Sanders has you know lapped the field and again in terms of his campaign fundraising, but I think that a lot of people are holding out on their support, and then you know if Biden runs, I think we're going to see a ton of money pouring in. I think Biden will probably end up with his choice of you know like staffers and people to work on his campaign. Um, but yeah, so up until this point, I think Kamala Harris has been trailing along in second in terms of you know the amount of fundraising that she's had. But I think that a lot of the infrastructure laid by the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, those type of people, if not those you know people themselves, you'll see that sort of more moderate uh, Democratic machine go into motion if and when Biden does declare. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think that whether you like it or not, or you agree with it or not. I, you know, if there is a Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, John Kerry, Al Gore in this race, it's Joe Biden. And perhaps it shows that even though so much has changed, so little hasn't. But, you know, I guess another thing that I noticed when you were saying that is that what Bernie Sanders has done even in the last week in terms of fundraising is absolutely ridiculous. Incredible. But it's 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 that that that's the thing though is I, I think that when Bernie Sanders announced he's running and he got all of these 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 donors, they are actual small donor people donating to him in this massive amount collectively. Whereas when we talk about Joe Biden or even Beto O'Rourke, these people who are lying in wait, the people who I think are mm-hmm. lying in wait to donate are more so the establishment figures exactly and the the conglomerate sorts rather than individual people i'm not saying people won't get behind them because we both know that joe biden and better o'rourke both have really uh astronomically phenomenal you know abilities to fundraise and to garner political support oh, they both we, demonstrated we saw that. that with o'rourke just recently i mean he raised an insane amount of money in a, in a senate race and Biden, obviously, you know, he has enough name appeal that, you know, PACs and, and groups will line up to give him money. I'm fairly certain he raised more money uh, than any Senate Democratic candidate in history. I believe so. Like that, But I know for a fact he raised, or he actually, the most important part, he received more votes statewide than any Democratic candidate in Texas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you can do that in Texas, that's a pretty good argument. But at the same time, you know, and Joe Biden... We're comparing the two um i know a lot of people put the two together potentially foreshadowing but you know i, I it's it's difficult to say but i think also like we said sanders has had a really impressive haul but also uh harris has has also right. um, really really hit the ground running as i think in terms of sanders had a the difference is that sanders and, and biden had a pre-ordained uh, base of support but out of all the people who are just jumping in for the first time um elizabeth warren has done well 
but I think that Kamala Harris has had the most successful um, out of the newcomers. You know, people who haven't done this before. I think Harris has had the most successful launch and has had the best chance of staying relevant over the course of the last few months because she has persisted in the polls. The new Democratic primary schedule of California moving up, mm-hmm. plus she'll do well in South Carolina and, and Nevada. You know, and I think she's investing in that too. She's probably downplaying her odds in Iowa and New Hampshire and thinking that she might be able to, you know, play catch up. Um, and that also might be where you see some 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 people like Booker and Castro struggling is because she is sort of uh, eating up out. their yeah their base. They, well, I I wouldn't say base, but any chance of them having a base in those states, right? Um, so, yeah, so you mentioned Kamala Harris. I think she's the last person that we haven't talked about uh, in terms of, like, substantive uh, policy and appeal. And I think that she really contrasts from Sanders and Biden in particular. I mean, for obvious reasons. I mean, Biden and Sanders are, like, two old white men. Uh, Kamala Harris, you know, comes from a very different background. Um, you know, she's a minority. She has she, – she's more of a touchstone to that intersectional uh, – coalition conglomerate like uh, there's been a, 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 a movement among the democratic party um that has embraced diversity and i think kamala harris uh really you know crushes biden and and sanders in that department um how do you think she can leverage the cultural forces inside the democratic party uh do you think they'll help her um and do you think that's enough to overcome perhaps the you know uh establishment uh, or, you know, in Bernie Sanders' case, maybe not establishment, but already set up uh, political, you know, it, uh, basically attack weapons that both Biden and Sanders have built up from their time in, in politics. Do you think that she can beat that out? Uh, I mean, because after all, money only goes so far, right? You, ha- you still have to get the voters. And Kamala Harris has been very uh, pointed in her attempts to put herself on the public stage, uh, to appear likable, to kind of line herself up with the energy of somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, you know, portray herself as young, energetic, vibrant, funny. I mean, she was on The Breakfast Club saying that, you know, she did, you know, she uh, smoked weed in college. Uh, do you think that her maybe superior ability to connect to all sorts of people among the Democratic base uh, will be enough to push her over the top against people like Biden and Sanders? Well, I know if you ask her dad about her Breakfast Club appearance, <laughs> that he doesn't. <laughs> I'm sure, as any parent well, would. Uh... That's that's from her background, I guess. But I think, like I said, you know, Harris and her, what she's done so far, um, you know, whatever it might be, she's done it right because the way that she has separated herself from this sort of because it wasn't always there were you know there was this i guess predetermined idea of who was in the top tier and who wasn't but you know there was a lot more it, you know if you asked a year ago uh cory booker versus kamala harris you know who has the best shot of winning the presidency it would not be quite as clear mm-hmm. but today if you ask that question i'm not really sure how you could argue that Cory Booker has a better chance. That's not to say that, in, of course, the, the, the election is more than a year from now, so that could change so much from now to then, but just saying here we are today, Harris 
has a much better chance than Booker does. And, uh, you know, that's not just because of habit stance. So in terms of how she can distinguish herself from sort of the other frontrunners in Biden and Sanders, I mean, she's done so, so much, and it remains to be seen how she can succeed if Biden does enter the race, or for that matter, O'Rourke. I do think that they take a little from each other, but not too much. Um, but, you know, if, if the, thing about, the thing about Harris is that it's going to come down to how much does the Democratic Party want to nitpick about people's uh, their, their backgrounds or their policy prescriptions. Kamala Harris, as a candidate, um, she seems like a near-perfect foe for Donald Trump. But then again, it depends on what you and I consider a perfect foe. On paper, she's a perfect foe. But, Mm -hmm. you know, where does she play in swing states versus where does she play with the base? You know, those are different stories. So, Does does her background as a prosecutor hurt her or help her? In the Democratic primary, probably hurt her, but not exponentially. I like I don't I don't think that her. I guess what I'm saying is that her prosecutorial background doesn't help her in the Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. Whether it hurts her is up to how she paints it. In the general election, I don't think that matters at all. Um, you know, I don't, right, right. You know how how you compare Kamala Harris and her treatment of death row inmates. Versus uh, well, <laughs> any I mean, of these Democratic I mean, I, candidates versus how you how this black woman from California treats people versus how Donald Trump treats anybody. You know, that matters. <laughs> none. Yeah, election. no, once you so, get to the general, it, I mean, if anything, Republicans would be they, they like prosecutors generally, right. speak, you know, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just don't. I, I think she has a good path. I really do, and I think that there are a, there's a, really a sort of, and uh, we're, we're so we're so we're in the thick of it, but we're still so far out that there are so many things that can occur that it makes it very difficult to make predictions. But I I don't find it hard to believe at all that she would find a way to make it out as the nominee because mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of different things uh, in terms of candidates that may or may not run. And in terms of stumbles those candidates may have, and in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of those respective candidates, I think that there is a clear path for her to make it to the primary, especially mm-hmm. with, like I said, the new schedule for the Democratic primary, where California has an upsized say right. in the matter. I'm sure going to bump, and, yeah, obviously uh, being from California. Minority, uh, majority states have more of a say. Iowa and New Hampshire are historically very white and also very not so in tune with um, some of the larger prevailing forces in American mm-hmm. politics. Right. Although I will say that, you know, even though Iowa, I mean, the, Hillary Clinton actually came closer to winning Texas than Iowa in the general election. But if you're talking about the Democratic primary, you know, the Democratic Party in Iowa is actually pretty progressive. Um, so compared to New Hampshire, which actually has a little more flavors in it of, you know, there's sort of people who are less attuned to gun control within that within that uh, party, and there are people who are a little more libertarian mm-hmm. in that. So there, those sorts of states, you do see that little bit of difference where certain candidates might succeed more. But, you know, I think that Harris has a lot 
of a reason in some of those Super Tuesday states and also places like South Carolina and Nevada and, and California. All right. All right. So um, in the interest of time, I have two quick political questions and then I have uh, one or two real quick sports questions. I'm just going to throw at you real quick. Uh, consider this a lightning round of sorts. Um, if you had to pick today without Biden in the Democratic fields, who wins uh, Who wins the Democratic nomination? You really, you really did that to me. Yeah, I did. One word answer. No explanations. No, no ifs, ands, or buts. Who wins? Without Biden. And I can't pick two. You can pick one. Because I would say Harris or Sanders. But, All right, uh, nah, that doesn't count. I, I, right. I will say, I, I will say, I will say Harris. All right, and if Biden does run, Biden. All right, and uh, now for the sports questions. Uh, we didn't cover this, but I know that you're um, an avid, avid New Jersey Devils fan as well as an NHL fan in general. Uh, which team do you think positioned itself at the trade deadline for postseason success the most? I've, off the top of my head, while well, I give you some uh, some breathing room there to think about it, I'd probably go with Columbus or Nashville, um, just because they both added multiple quality players. Um, but what do you think? I think between the two, certainly Nashville, and that's because I, on paper it's a little closer, I think, than 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 otherwise. But you know, um, Columbus has actually found itself struggling a bit because it's in a much more difficult conference right um you know for nashville to succeed its way to a higher seed in the playoffs will be much easier than columbus because right now columbus is not even assured a playoff position so i think that the additions of uh, at the trade deadline you know um ridding themselves of certain players and also adding players like duchene and dezingle are going to help them um but you know it's a matter of is Columbus going to be helped versus Pittsburgh and Carolina and Montreal, Washington, um, right? Versus Tampa, Toronto. Nashville is against whom? You know, no one's doubting that Nashville is not only going to be in the playoffs but going to be a top seed. So to right. add players to an already, you know, a team that within the last two years was contending for the Stanley Cup, Columbus has never won a playoff round in its history, mm. and that could change and may change this year and for that matter i hope it does i i would i always like to see new teams as long as it's not the rangers or flyers you're happy with another team well, winning. Teams. yeah they've right. been around long enough antagonizing but right you know to see to see most new teams um succeed i always like that because i'm a little sick of the same old same old but you know nashville has never won the cup Columbus has never won the cup a lot of these other teams in question either haven't or haven't in a long time. Some of the upstart teams, I guess, like Calgary. Um, yeah, they're, they're uh, like top two seed in the West right now. Yeah, I, I really at this point it seems not a matter of, you know, will they win, uh, but how much do they win by? You know, right. I think San Jose is close to them, but not too close. And San Jose is that team that's just always experienced enough to make it, but but never enough to actually win it. And for that matter, I wish they would just get it out of their system too. Right. And final question. This is another um, one-answer question, and then I'll let you go. Who wins the Stanley Cup? One team. Well, One team. There's no way that you could answer anybody but the Lightning. 
right now. Uh, and I say that knowing that very rarely does the President's Trophy team win the Cup or even succeed that much in the playoffs. But, you know, what they've done this year and in the last few years leading up to it is just so special that uh, it's nearly unprecedented the success that they've had. Over, so it's, uh... it's, I will say, I guess, it's theirs to lose. If And I'm not saying they won't lose it. They may. But there's no team that has a better chance than they do because, uh, you know, and I and having the benefit of seeing them, I mean, I've seen them live a few times this year, and I've also, you know, I've watched a few of their games, and and just it's one of those teams that whether you look at them on paper or you watch them on TV or you watch them live, it's just it's such a good team that uh, you know. Barring any major fiascos, um, there are going to be very few teams, I think, that will be able to legitimately compete with them. And if they make it to the conference final or the Stanley Cup final, there's not a chance that a Western Conference team could beat them. Over at the uh, among Rangers fans, we call them Rangers South. Uh, we say they draft the offense and then we trade in the defense. Um, seeing as there are so many former Rangers on that team. Um, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, we hope to have you on again. Do you have anything or anybody that you want to plug before you go? Or anything that you want to say at all? No, I, I think you I think I've talked enough. I think <laughs> No, no, we value we value this uh, this this content. <laughs> I think you've you you know we've covered all we've covered a lot of bases, but uh, of course you know that uh, a lot changes in this landscape these days so uh anytime that you feel like there's anything else that you want me to talk about i'm more than happy to definitely will uh as always or i guess this is the first time but hopefully it'll be as always uh in the future uh we appreciate having you on um just for the listeners that is Jarrett altilio and um stay tuned for another episode next week